Thank you, Nathan. Good morning, everyone. Joy to be with you today. Um, lovely to be together and to be singing the Lord's praise. Thank you to the band and to all who've led us so far in the lifting up of the name of the Lord Jesus this morning. And thank you to Nathan for reading that passage and for giving me a bit of a heart attack because I didn't recognize a word of it. He read 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I'm thinking, this is not what I'd prepared. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, 2 Timothy 4 is a phenomenal passage, and I, and I was actually swithering, will we just go with that? But 1 Timothy 4 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. So thank you for profoundly unsettling me. <laughs> as we did that. Uh, it's funny what the thoughts that go through your head. This is not ringing any bells. <laughs> I just want to read, we'll just read for the sake of time from verse 6, where Paul says to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you've followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness for while bodily training is of some value godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people especially of those who believe. And Father, with our Bibles open before us, we want to take some time now to think together about the hope to which you've called us. And as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, we ask you now to do the miracle, to open the eyes of our hearts, that we might know the hope to which you've called us. Glorify your Son, continue to exalt him, as we look at your word, as we hear your voice, whether we know you or not, if we don't know you, bring us to see how glorious a Savior we have. And if we know and love the Savior, bring us to know and love you better. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Now I think Paul's going to put up on the screen uh, a wee PowerPoint that we sent in earlier on. And if you just advance it one more, Paul, you'll see a picture here. I don't know if you've been in Glasgow Central recently, but this statue was erected just immediately before COP26. It's a huge wooden human. And on the plinth, if you advance again, Paul, on the plinth, you'll not be able to read it there, but there is a poem by Scottish poet laureate Jackie Kay. And this is what it says. Hope is Black Lives Matter. Hope is me too. Hope is my son and my daughter. Hope is a girl called Greta. Hope is the color of the future. So if you're in Glasgow Central, I think it's still there, and you've got a few minutes before you catch a train, you might want to go into W.H. Smith, or you might want to go and look um, and read that, that little uh, poem. And I'm not here to criticize that or mock it or comment on it, but whatever you think of the merits of the poetry, and whatever you think of its definition of hope, I think it is proof, if any proof were needed, that there is a desperate longing for hope in the world in which we live and in this culture in which we live. And I've been amazed recently as I've set my myself the task of trying to understand better 
What is the Christian hope? What does it mean for us to have hope? I've been amazed at how much the New Testament has to say about this. And to discover two things, how, how glorious the Christian hope is, and also how utterly down-to-earth and practical Christian hope really is. So this morning, we're going to turn back to 1 Timothy. I know that as a church family, you worked all your way through 1 Timothy last year in the middle of lockdown because I had the privilege of being uh, part of that series. And it'll be familiar to you, but we're, we're not going to look at it all this morning. I just want to try and pick out what Paul has to say about hope just in this one book. Because even as believers in the Lord Jesus, sometimes our field of vision begins to shorten and we, we, we live for hopes that are only in this world and we need to understand Christian hope and set our hopes upon it that, that we might live it out before others and that they would see the reality of the Lord Jesus in our lives. So there are two main things I want us to look at today. Under the second heading, I've got some subs, but we'll come to that in a moment. So here we go, Paul. Point number one, let's notice together, first of all, the essence of of our hope. And please turn to the very first verse of 1 Timothy, the very first verse of 1 Timothy, where Paul writes, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Christ Jesus our hope. We're looking now for the essence of our hope and as soon as we read that final line of the first verse of this letter from Paul to Timothy, if we know anything true about the Lord Jesus, and I'm sure, I'm sure you know lots that's true of him, then we can also deduce that the, the, the kind of hope to which Paul refers here isn't the same as the hope I might have that it won't rain when I'm out walking the dog. That's wishful thinking, but it has zero impact on the weather. Or when somebody says to you, I hope you know what you're doing. You know, when they use that phrase, we almost know that they mean the opposite of that, don't they? They, they actually hope the opposite, that we will be, they'll be proved right and, and, and our incompetence will be unveiled. And it will be demonstrated that we didn't know what we were doing. Or it's similar when the boss says to you, I, I hope you don't mind, but I've changed your days off in the roster for the next two or three weeks. And you'd plans made and you'd arrangements made. Now it's all up in the air. But that little word, well, I hope, I hope you don't mind. It's meaningless, isn't it? And I mention these little examples to show that when Christ Jesus is our hope, we're using that word, hope, <laughs> same word, but it must have a radically different meaning because he does not mean the opposite of what he says and he doesn't offer people empty platitudes. And part of what we have to do, brothers and sisters, is to uncouple hope from any of the uncertain ways that we use it, such as I've just described, and attach it to the rock-solid certainty that is the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. I don't, have, I don't think I have any other cross-references outside of 1 Timothy this morning, but one just kept coming to my mind as I thought about this rock-solid certainty. Do you remember how in the Hebrew, uh, when the Hebrew writer is, is, give, is, is writing, Hebrews chapter 6, he speaks of believers as those who have fled for refuge that we might find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope 
set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. An anchor for the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. I don't think there is another context in this world in which the word hope can be located to a sure and steadfast anchorage, but it does here. Paul speaks in this first verse of Christ Jesus, our hope. So our hope, our essence, the essence of our hope is a person. And he lives, having died for our sin, as we've been singing this morning. And now he's exalted to the right hand of his Father in glory. And he works out everything according to the counsel of his will. Everything, every detail. And he will return and, and, and we'll be with him and we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. So at its very essence, the Christian hope is the person of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, our hope is not at all built on what we have done for him or on how we've responded and reacted to him. Our hope is built entirely on the initiative that he took and all that he has done to save us. And I mention that because... I know my own heart, I know my own head, as you will know yours. And I find that as a Christian, I tend to lose my hope and my joy when I forget this. And I begin to feel hopeless about my so-called performance as one who would claim to know the Lord Jesus, when there is still so much work that is to be done in my life and in my heart. But I'm looking in the wrong direction for my hope if I'm looking at my performance and what I do for him. So let's recalibrate our hope today and set it entirely in what he has done for us. Never on what we do or don't do for him. Our hope is not inert. It's not vague. He is living. It's not just the color of the future, as that poem said. Our hope is living and active. He's done things for us that we could never have done for ourselves. So the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has achieved for those he has called to salvation is the essence of our hope. And that's verse one. Let's move to the second thing here, Paul, which is the effect of our hope. And this is what I really want us to get to this morning. What does having Christ Jesus as our sure and steadfast hope, what does that do to the day-to-day lives of the Lord's people. What impact might it have on your life in this incoming week? What does this great hope look like to people who might see in us something that is not us, but is the Lord at work in us? What might that look like? So that people might be prompted to ask us if we can explain the hope that is in us, as 1 Peter 3.15 puts it. Well, what I want us to do in 1 Timothy, is to notice three lifestyles in that church family in Ephesus that are mentioned by Paul as he wrote to Timothy there. And we're going to see the effect of Christ Jesus as our hope in each of these three lifestyles. And this is where it gets a hope very practical for us. So here we go, Paul again. In a moment, thirdly, we're going to see those we find in luxury. Secondly, we're going to find those we find in loneliness. But brace yourselves. First of all, we're going to find those we find in Lycra. Now, Lycra is not a city in the ancient world. I'm talking here about gym gear. And maybe that's giving you images that you'd rather not have in your head. 
But turn back to chapter 4 that we read a few moments ago, where Paul has a wee word of encouragement to those who've just renewed their gym membership by telling them in verse 8, have a look at it with me, that bodily training is of some value. But it's not our ultimate hope. Just over the back from our home in, in Renfrew is, is one of the David Lloyd gyms, locally known as the Lloydie, because Renfrew is a very classic place. And that's, that's, that's my gym. When I say it's my gym, I've been there. When I say I've been there, it was a funeral tea in the restaurant. But I, 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 was, in the, I was in the building, and it's just over the back from where we live. And from day to day, as I move around Renfrew, I see the car park full of pink-faced people coming out of the gym or hurrying into the gym. And sometimes through the windows, I can see them standing in front of these long mirrors. And I know that the gym is a hope factory. I know that's really what's going on there. The faces I see are the faces of people whose hope is built on having the body of a 20-year-old when they're well into their 50s. And it ain't happening anytime soon for most of them. I see grown men now pose the way we boys used to do when their granny asked them to show them their muscles and everybody laughed and thought it was just a bit of fun. Now, I don't want to lampoon this completely because, of course, it is good to look after our bodies. It is good to look after our health and do what we can to stay reasonably fit. But the point that Paul would make in 1 Timothy 4 about Christian hope is that our hope is not located there. As Christian believers, we know, don't we, that we came from the dust and to dust we will return. That's what Psalm 91 tells us. So we know that there can be no permanent hope in our physical well-being until that day when the Lord Jesus gives us resurrection bodies. It's going to be very physical forever. We're going to have physical bodies. We're going to live in a world that is more real than this, more rock-solid real than this. We're not going to be floating about on clouds playing harps. That's a load of junk. What lies ahead for us is a physical reality, a physical eternity with physical bodies. But there is no permanent hope until then in our physical bodies. No permanent hope, eternal hope, is found not in physical well-being, but in spiritual well-being, in our relationship with God, in our increasing likeness to his Son, the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, interestingly here, he says that this spiritual reality is where believers work out most this is our gym. This is the arena where we sweat it out and put the effort and energy in. Have a look with me there at verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive. They're strong words, aren't they? To this end we toil and strive. That's gym language. Because we've set our hope on the living God who's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. I just want you to see how practical this is. The, the, the sign that we have our hope set on the living God is that however hard we work out when we go to the gym or when we go on our, our uh, bikes at home or our cross-country ski machines or whatever it may be, and I have clothes hung in all of these kind of things all around the house and some are in the garage now, 
But however hard we work on these, however much of a sweat we build up in these, and that can be, that can be a really good thing to do. For the Christian, says Paul, for the healthy Christian who set their hope on the living God, our most strenuous workout is spiritual. I find that very challenging. Paul says we toil, we strive, we go into training. Verse 7, train yourself for godliness. Verse 6, trained in the words of the faith. Why? Because verse 8, bodily training is of some value. But godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise to the present life and also for the life to come. Now, I, I keep wanting to balance this because, of course, I see Dr. Smith there. He would tell us that there is significant mental and physical benefit in bodily training. Of course there is. But Paul says, yeah, but it holds zero promise for the life to come. And if we don't hear this, if we don't see that reality to which Paul points us here, a strange thing can happen. Physical preservation, physical fitness can cause us to begin to live only for this life, which would make us very miserable. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that physical fitness, as I alluded to earlier on, is often linked to attractive appearance. I guess all of us from an alarmingly early age, we, we begin to notice the changes that age and experience bring to our faces and to our bodies. We, we just begin to notice it, don't we? But isn't it great that when we have our hope set on the living God, our level of fitness and our physical appearance these things don't have the power to define us in the way that they define those whose hope is not in the living God. You see, when, when your hope is not in the living God, when your hope is in your physicality, when your hope is in how strong and fit you are and how you look, when your hope is in that, and that all starts to go south, as it undoubtedly does, as we all know, it's a terrifying experience. A thousand deaths before you finally shuffle off. But for the believer, our hope is not located there. We're not afraid as we see the change and decay that the hymn writer speaks about. Physical fitness is a blessing. It's something to be treasured as best we can. We're not to take it for granted. It is of some value. But the real treasure is what God has done for us in Christ. And our toil and our striving and our training, our real workout is spiritual. And it's not a workout to make ourselves worthy of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. It's a workout to make sure we're setting all our hope entirely in what he's done for us. Not to make us worthy of it, not to earn his approval, not to accumulate some points with him. That's not how we toil and strive. No, our toiling, our striving, our training is in getting our minds to think properly about these things and rest and trust in what our Savior has accomplished for us. That is hard work because we are all naturally prone to want to live by what we can achieve for ourselves. 
Now, one other practical implication of this that I've been thinking about is that when I, and th this happens from time to time, when I see brothers and sisters in the local fellowship who, who at least don't seem to be throwing energy and effort and enthusiasm into the Christian life and into the life of the body, into the life of the, the assembly, the Lord's people. I suppose up until now, when I would have seen that, I would have just thought, oh, maybe they're, maybe they're just growing cold in general, or maybe they're just lazy, or maybe there's other things going on. There might be reasons for that. But what I see here now from this text is that one of the reasons someone might be not throwing energy into their Christian life, not making effort, not striving, not toiling, not training, in, in, in a vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus, not throwing their heart into the work of the fellowship. One of the reasons that might happen might just be because their hope has dwindled. The hope that they set in the Lord, the living God, has drifted away from him. I say that because of this all-important joining word in verse 10. Have a look at it with me. For to this end we toil and strive because we've set our hope on the living God. That joining word, because we've set our hope on the living God. But when I have my hope set elsewhere, there'll be no toiling, there'll be no striving, there'll be no training in godliness, there'll be no service among his people. My hope will be set elsewhere, and I'll just feel a bit bemused and out of place among believers who are excited about the Lord and what he's doing. And I'll just want to watch boxes and go to the gym. And I'll feel increasingly disengaged from the spiritual life and from the Lord and from his people. And I'm reaching out to anybody who feels that way today. I'm describing a pattern to anybody who feels that way today to encourage you to think about have you set your hope on the living God. Have you done this thinking? Well, let's get away from those we find in Lycra. Secondly, those we find in loneliness. The next type of person Paul writes to Timothy about here is an older lady in the church family. Paul's begun to focus on this group in chapter 5, verse 2, if you glance down at it. And this older sister in Christ has, has lost her husband. She's a widow. She's not the only widow in the fellowship, but the others who have lost their husbands have children and grandchildren, it would seem, to look after them in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5. But the lady Paul focuses on here in chapter 5 doesn't have a family to care for her. So have a look at chapter 5, verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, that's where I get living in loneliness, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Now back in the day when Paul wrote this to Timothy who was serving the church in Ephesus, this sister would have had no income, no pension, no social security, no government provision at that time. And Paul goes on to show how the church is to care for her and those like her. But it's really interesting what he says about her in chapter 5, verse 5, that she has set her hope on God and she continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She has a very lively relationship with the Lord and she has a very lively 
prayer life. Now, having introduced you to this lady, I'm going to let her, as it were, take a seat for a moment. We'll catch up with her again presently. But now let me introduce you to the third group here. Thank you, Paul. Those that we find in luxury. Because the other person we're going to meet is is also part of a group. They're spoken of in chapter 6 in a plural. Chapter 6, verse 17. I'm going to get to it in a moment, but you can look it up just now. This group are not like the widow, at least in the sense that they are rich, they have wealth. And as soon as I say that, I guess we would much rather be in that group than in the situation that the widow finds herself in. And it may be that you don't see yourself in that bracket this morning as we come to think about the wealthy. But let me remind you that if you have woken up this morning and had a roof over your head, clothes to put on, food to eat, never mind a choice of clothes and a choice of food, you're in the top tiny percentage of wealth in this planet, globally speaking. But what is very striking to me here is that nothing is said about the prayer life of the wealthy. And there's a bit of a question mark over their hope. Have a look in chapter 6, verse 17. You with me? As for the rich in this present age, big hint there, this present age, this passing age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. There's the third time we've read the phrase set your hope or set their hopes in this letter. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, I don't know about you, but I can tell you that for myself, unless the eyes of my heart had been miraculously enlightened to see the reality of life like this, I would have just gone through life pitying the widow in chapter 5, verse 5, and envying the wealthy in chapter 6, verse 17. That's, That's how most people think. That's the most natural way to view other people's circumstances in life. But it's not the way that Paul looks at life. It's not utter reality that Paul presents to us here. Because as the eyes of our hearts begin to see reality, we may be amazed to discover that those with comparative financial security are potentially, can you believe it, in a much more vulnerable position than the widow with no financial security. Can you believe that? Paul says that she has set her hope in God and she continues in supplications and prayers night and day. And the implication is that the materially wealthy don't think they need to set their hope in God and continue in supplications and prayers night and day because Paul has to say to Timothy, warn them about where they're putting their hope. Charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of wealth. In fact, they are in danger of setting their hopes there and fascinatingly, they are the ones whose future would be uncertain. Not the widow who doesn't know perhaps where her next meal is coming from. 
you know, from a human perspective, she's the one who looks very vulnerable. She's the one whose future looks very uncertain. Paul says, no, it's the polar opposite. It's not godly widows whose hope is set in the Lord who are vulnerable to the uncertainties. It's the wealthy. Look at that phrase in verse 17 of chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So where is the uncertainty in this church family as Paul thinks about it, as he writes to Timothy in Ephesus? You know, if you and I had seen the widow and the wealthy walking into the meeting on Sunday morning, who would you rather be spiritually? Well, it's amazing. The wealthy are prone to all the uncertainties of temporary material wealth. But the widow whose hope is in God is bomb-proof. You wouldn't see that with merely human sight. We only see that as the eyes of our hearts are opened, as the Holy Spirit does his work and shows us this truth in his word. So when Nathan said, I wanted to talk a little bit today about Christian hope, I wondered, did you think it was going to get down to this kind of thing? Because I didn't expect this until I came to prepare it. And it has amazed me to see how challenging this issue of Christian hope is. And more fascinating still, we notice here that it's not the widow who's going to be cared for by the church. She won't be a drain on the church. They might have to help her financially and do things for her and be an extended family to her as, as the church family ought to be to one another. But she's not going to be a drain on the resources. No, the, no, no, the wealthy with that haughty attitude Chapter 6, verse 17. That deadly smugness that comes from a deep sense of self-sufficiency, even a, an arrogant superiority, that's what's going to be a drain on the church. That's what's going to make it so hard to love one another and live out the gospel well and for the people who live around us to see the transforming power of Christ. So I find it so surprising. And yet it makes perfect sense that Paul, as he writes to Timothy, he's not fretting for the widow whose hope is in the Lord, but he is fretting for the wealthy whose hope is in their looker. He tells Timothy, charge them not to be haughty. Charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We mustn't forget that second part of the verse. Do you see that far from being envious of the materially wealthy, Paul wants those who have wealth in this world to be truly and eternally enriched. That's what he wants for them. He wants them to set their hope on the God of the universe and our God is loaded. Talk about wealthy. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every land. It's all his. Every penny is his. And it will be his for all eternity. He's put it into human hands for the time being, but it's 
all his. There's nothing that is not his. And he's not against people enjoying life. Do you notice that? He is generous. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's not against our enjoyment. You know that idea of the kind of puritanical, Calvinistic, Scottish Christian misery that if we're not suffering, there's something badly wrong and we're very surprised, we're not sure we should be smiling at all. Is it godly to smile? That's, that's a terrible, terrible view. That's done such damage to the gospel. Our God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He doesn't just provide us with the essentials. He provides us for what we need for our enjoyment. And when our hope is in him, we enjoy him. When our hope is in him, we enjoy everything he gives us through him. It doesn't drive us from him, it drives us to him. We don't just see him as the giver and take the gifts and leave him. We keep going back to him and enjoying him. And so verse 18 of chapter 6, these, uh, the rich are to be rich in good works. They're to do good. They're to be rich in good works. They're to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasures for themselves. So you think of these people back in Ephesus, the rich who were shrewd with their money, who knew how to make a killer investment, who read the Financial Times and got all the data and knew where to put their money, knew where the smart money was going to be, and they, they knew how to make a killing. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. The trouble is you're not shrewd enough. You've not done the thinking. This is the way to store up treasure for yourself. This is the way to make a good foundation for the future. So that, verse 19, look at it they may take hold of that which is truly life. There's the essence and the effect of Christian hope. When our hope is set on the living God, it cuts our ties with addictive false hopes. Whether it's in our physical fitness or our material wealth. Two things that are massive in our culture. Real Christian hope set in the Lord cuts our addiction to these false hopes and enables us to take hold of that which is truly life. And the alternative is to keep hold of that which is actually death. Very interesting to flick back just for a moment as we close now, but very interesting maybe to flick back to chapter 5 and verse 6 and you'll see the opposite of the prayerful widow in chapter 5, verse 6, is she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So Paul's offering to the wealthy those, you know, you, you and I might see them in our culture and they might drive past and we might say that's how the other half live. Paul says that's not truly life. He's saying, this is truly life. Take hold of that which is 
truly life. Not in self-indulgence, which is a kind of living death. Oh, I wonder, have the eyes of our hearts been opened to see the realities that are the opposite of the way that we instinctively think and see and believe? I find it very thrilling and very striking and hugely challenging for myself. Think of the wealthy, think of the widow in Ephesus in the first century. Who is better off? In your heart, can you answer that question now? Who is better off? Of course, it is the sister in Christ who's lost everything apparently in this world, but her hope is in God. And that's going to be richly repaid in a coming day. Nancy Wolgamoth says, and I quote, anything that makes me need God is a blessing. Anything that makes me need God is a blessing. So you think of the things that invade your life as I think of the things that invade my life that I'd rather hadn't. The family illness, the deaths, the hassles, the pressures, the things that I would rather hadn't come into my life. But our sister Nancy Wolgamoth says, yeah, but the thing about them is they make you need God and they're a blessing. Whereas the wealthy person is thinking, everything that makes me not need God is a blessing. It's great. I don't need to pray. I don't need to depend on him like that because I've got my self sorted out. Oh, it's hard graft to train our minds to think this way. That's what Paul means in chapter 4 by toiling and striving and training to stop ourselves setting our hope on temporary, uncertain hopes and setting them on Christ Jesus, our hope. But may it be for the glory of God that as we've looked at this this morning, we'll go away thinking about it. We might talk about it to our families and our friends over lunch. And we might have chats about it through the week and pray about it and get alone with the Lord and read the passage again and say, Lord, help me to see this, to set my hope fully on the grace that is to come on the living Lord Jesus. Just shortly, we're going to break bread. We're going to ask you to stand as we pray just to give you a chance to change position. Stand and we'll pray together and then we're going to break bread and remember our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And just as we stand, give you a moment in the quietness just to reflect on what we've been thinking about this morning. Oh, we thank you, our Heavenly Father that you're a God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You're not a miserly, joy-killing, penny-pinching God. So help us not to set our hopes in all the wrong things that make us not need you or think we don't need you. Help us to treasure the measure of physical health we have. We think of those whose health has broken down completely in our church family. We lift them to you today and pray that you might encourage them to know that they're going to have resurrection bodies. And in a coming day, they're going to be fitter than they've ever been, than anybody has ever been in the face of the earth so far. 
But help us to treasure our physical fitness, but not to build our identity on it, or our appearance, or our material wealth. Help us not to set our hopes there, but in Christ Jesus our hope. And Father, if someone's listened to this this morning, and they don't have that kind of hope in Christ, please, in your mercy, would you open the eyes of their hearts decisively to trust in him. For the glory of Jesus we ask it. Amen.